Sí, cosas que yo sé ahora es muy loco, ¿ok? Gente. Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM, also streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the Deer Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with Terrence Stewart, statewide director of the Times Done Project. Our conversation topic addresses the current COVID-19 protocols of sheltering in place, social distancing, wearing of masks in public and how those policies have different experiences via the racialized prototypes, the stigma and risks that some of us experience as an additional layer to what is an already stressful situation. Terrence Stewart joins us online. Terrence, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, my name is Terrence Stewart. I'm a statewide director of a, of a nonprofit, but I've been a, um, in the Riverside area. I've been a local advocate for for many of years, and I talk on a lot of the issues that we face and like you know injustices. Yeah, that's how I like to describe myself. You know, Terrence. Well, I, I was hoping today we could talk a little bit about. Just this moment that we're going through this uh, shelter at home, stay safe by, you know, social distancing ourselves from participating. And for a lot of us, it's felt like this moment has been a slowdown. We're spending less time out. Our jobs may have even taken, you know, a kind of like a cool down period. At the same time, for many of us, that doesn't really apply. Uh, the way that we are working in points of advocacy, demand that we continue to work. But also on a second point, for many of us, this sheltering at home, this quarantine period didn't slow things down, but in fact, intensified, accelerated, uh, heightened our points of vulnerability. Unfortunately, you know, we're going to be talking about something that is heartbreaking. Ahmad Arbery, his name is being uh, getting a lot of national attention for the unfortunate, sad reality of his death, uh, his killing. That's the context that I wanted to start today's conversation. Uh, we've shared similar talks, you and I, about the history of violence, the, the anti-blackness, anti-brownness, anti-indigenous expression that we navigate on a daily basis and i'd like to open the conversation with that how do we contextualize what's been happening for me it adds to the list of um things that you know they, they're deeming like african-americans as the worst or people of color period as, as, the, as the worst as far as like in this pandemic they're saying like you know, it was a big thing. African-Americans were the 
people were getting the COVID or dying from the COVID at, at, at an alarming rate. You know, that just goes on to another thing that they're demonizing a certain population with. So here's where we, where we think about where we are right now, that during this moment nationally, we're trying to protect ourselves because there is this virus, the COVID-19, that is escalating vulnerabilities. You know, our bodies themselves are getting sick, making it hard for us to continue working. If we can't work, we have a hard time paying our rent feeding ourselves, taking care of ourselves. But then there's also this moment where things feel nationally that everyone is somewhat safe. They're locked down. They're um, spending time, you know, in this sheltered uh, quarantine experience. And for many of us, we feel that we're, yeah, that we've distanced ourselves from a lot of the outside threats. What I'd like to place as context is that the reality is that many of us are still feeling vulnerable when we go outside. When we go to get our food, just like the idea that, yeah, you put a mask on, but that mask, depending on the tone of your body, the pigmentation of your body, signals a threat there was something that you mentioned a while back that like how awkward you know times have changed there was a time that if you walked in to a store with a bandana over your face covering your mouth and nose they would immediately call the police yet that's what i see i i was just at the regular pharmacy almost everyone was wearing an, an actual bandana they weren't wearing the surgical mask. They were just wearing a folded bandana that I remember growing up in my neighborhood. If people wore that, it raised alarm. Yep. And yet here's where we are now. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, and it's funny because we had a town hall with the um, police chief. And he said the um, same thing. It's like he went from anybody who had a bandana or mask or anything, you know, he was stopping. But now that, you know, a person, before they walk into 7-Eleven, they have to put a mask on, you know, and, like, all the training that he ever had done to this moment kind of just, like, it it, 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 it becomes, a, like, what they call it the new normal. But it, 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 it's still, like, you know, so brand new that it's still new, you know. That's from a police perspective. And then, like, you know, as far as with me, like, you know what I mean? Like, well, for me, at first, you know, the whole COVID, they were like, it was for older people who may travel abroad and, you know, they more likely to act it. So I was going to the stores and stuff, and for the first time, I felt as if I wasn't like the, the, the terror of the store. Like, when, when the people see me, they grab their purse and stuff. Like, but this time, people were, the people who normally be afraid of me, people were afraid of. And, and, and it tripped me out because you can see it. It's obvious, like, you know what I mean? Amongst other people, the way that they used to hold their purses and do all types of weird things when they see my, my, my body, they're looking afraid and 
checking on their masks and stuff when they see other populations. And then that happened. I'm like, dang, look how, the, how, how COVID changed everything. But then the narrative shifted on COVID. And it went from being that, you know, older people to African-American people. And then the focus went right back to me, everybody being scared. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, I, I watched that whole little shift. You know, it, 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 it's pretty interesting because it happened real fast. You know, you can watch the news in the morning and by the next day, it's already a major change in life and way people are thinking. So, you know, um, to that point. Just to frame this conversation a little bit more, because one of the things that I've been uh, dealing with is that there has been a change in how people perceive what is happening in their daily life. So some people feel that this COVID response of sheltering in place created a very positive measure of safety so they they felt safe at home yeah maybe they got bored maybe they they started having to deal with issues of 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 mental health because of the fact that we find ourselves isolated but what i am catching is that as i see the news we are hearing certain things come out one of the things that we are seeing is this uh, overwhelming priority to figure out like hey are we going to get this vaccine are we going to get uh, a moment where we can reopen the economy? But we're also missing that at the same time, the prior system of violence is still in operation. Yep. So that people that were hungry before are even more hungry under COVID. People that were being harassed by the police, by those that have a little bit more power, even those that don't have power, but have enough privilege to create these stare down moments, you know, following someone, clutching your purse. Those moments are heightened. And I'm trying to connect it to this conversation about Ahmad Aubrey and yeah, how to make sense of what's happened. Um, the reports highlight uh, an incident that happened in February 23rd of this year but it has only been until recently in May that we found the arrest of Travis McMichael and Gregory McMichael also like I'm saying all this stigma upon like certain populations it, it all happens at the same time like that's what I'm saying like you know it's, it's multiple multiple things is happening at the same time because our brain our brain is, is it moves faster than an average computer you know so, like, you know, within our brain, we suck up a lot of information real quick and, and, and it affects it differently. And, like, what I was saying is that, like, earlier, like, the psychological effects of lynching, you know, to the point where, like, we have seen death. Because that, that was some of the things that we brought up before is that, like, you know, through, through, like, like, the reason why people are not afraid is because we have an infrastructure already where you don't just see dead bodies laying around. You know, we have coroners and, you know, like ambulance and everything that, that creates a, met, a way that you don't really see all the people who are really being hurt from COVID. Because if we did, we would um, be more like like cautious, we believe, you know. 
And um, so like to that to that at a point, you know, what happens when you don't see the death is that you don't, you know what I mean? It, it, it creates a place where you might not be as, as, as fearful. But, you know what I mean? What happens is, is that through, through constant showing of lynching of, of black bodies being murdered by the hands of, well, you know who, you know, whether it's police or vigilantes or some type of militia or something, you know, it's showing the black death, you know, like since you ever, since, since everything you could ever remember, you have always seen black bodies being lynched. And with that situation, you feel some type of emotion every time it happens. You know, you feel like um, every time I see a lynching, it does something to me psych- psychologically. It does something to my spirit. You know, it um, every time I see it, it, it all kinds of emotions I go through from anger to sad to emotions I can't even truly explain. You know, and like so many other people can't truly fully explain these emotions that we feel. But what happens is that's what we feel. But like, what do other people feel as well? You know, like, by constantly showing a certain death, you may even become desensitized to it. And when you become desensitized to it and it becomes normal to you, then you don't show the same empathy as you would if you see somebody being killed because you constantly seen it and it becomes somewhat normal. They normalize the, the, the murdering of, of, of a certain population. So then what happens to us is that we have all these mixed emotions within us, but so does other, everybody else who see it, because like you, or anybody else, like, you know, when, they, when I see certain things, you know, it's like, like, like the Rodney King beating. That was the first thing that I ever seen on camera, that like, you know, that an action camera, not an old lynching picture, but an actual you know, live footage type thing with the Rodney King beat. And, and, and the way I felt behind that, you know, or like seeing like a picture of Emmett Till back in the day, or, you know, all the pictures that you see over and over again and dog being sick and all this type of stuff, you know, it, it, it affects me emotionally. And then everybody else who see it, it, it has to affect them emotionally too. But like, how does it affect the other person? Does it affect them to the point where, like, they like this is horrendous. We need to work for justice, you know, or is it like, you know, I'm glad that don't happen to our people. And that's why I was saying before is like with all these stigmas going upon it, it's like a parent, right? You might have a, a interracial relationship, right? But you see lynchings since so back in the days. You hear on TV age, you hear on TV more COVID, you hear on TV, you see on TV them getting murdered, police murders, um, highest incarceration rates, all these things, right? And then, like, your daughter dates somebody black or your son dates somebody black. Now, subconsciously, all these things that you have seen is like, oh, why, why, why would you choose somebody like that? You know what I mean? Like, even if you don't say it, the way that the, the, we have been conditioned is still going to run through your mind because everybody has seen these images of lynching. And, and, and it affects everybody different. And, 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 and I say that because I've been to conferences and I've been to ethnic studies classes and all this stuff, right? And the reason why so many people are proud of their race is because they're not black. 
in, 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 and, I, and, I, and I've been to studies. I, I've been there. Um, you know, why, why are you happy that you're, because I can get a job, you know, because I can, um, because I, um, I don't get harassed by the police. You know, my people are not going to jail. You know, they give all these statistics of not why they're proud of their actual, what, what their, what their, what their race is doing. It ain't because, you know, um, my family was part of the Underground Railroad or nothing. It's because everything that the black struggle is, is what I don't want. Uh, it's difficult to really make sense of the experiences of people in little pieces. Uh, a lot of the conversations that I have been hearing and some of the pieces I've been reading about this incident with Ahmad Arbery are playing out in ways that have this binary shift. Some people are going, oh, that was a moment of racism. Other people are saying, nope, that's not racism. No, that was a group of people trying to capture someone who they believe had committed a crime. I just find it Go all that, like, you know, if, if the person wasn't black, you know, would, 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 would the same question be asked? And that, that, that becomes it because I, I still believe that through this, this, this psychological effect of lynching is like why they weren't, they weren't arrested from the very beginning. And this, this is my thing, like, you know, whether it's racism, whether it's racism or not, or conscious racism or not, what, what, what draws you to, if you see somebody drive down, riding down the street to make you want to pick up a gun? Not just saying like, 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 you know, and use it and use it. You know what I mean? Like, 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 and I just feel like, like through this constant stigma is the reason why people have no regard. Whether you would say that was them or like, why don't we do it to ourselves? I believe that this psychological effect of lynching is the reason why a lot of black on black violence happens at the level which it does because we have been stigmatized, not just to, for every, like I said, every time we watch these lynchings, it does something to me. You know what I mean? It, 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 it emotionally does something to me. And, and, and what it does, I haven't quite figured out yet. When I think about what's happened, I play it in this context of, of these little moments that have larger narratives. So you're, you're referencing the psychological effect of lynching, but we understand lynching as a technology of violence that was condoned by the state. The very government was condoning, sanctioning these. These were not always moments where the vigilante group went and tried to display a black body to intimidate the other community. The majority of lynchings were sanctioned, were supported by the very state apparatus, by the very local government, the local police. But what I want to kind of connect, or at least I'm connecting in my head here, is that when I hear people talk about this debate of like, should you call it racism? Should you not call it racism? I first begin by asking ourselves to define what we mean by racism. And my version of racism I use an individual version and, and an institutional format. 
The institutional format is that I use it to describe whenever a government action guided by race ideology to injure, to place certain groups in vulnerability. And here, some people may argue, well, then definitely that one doesn't apply because the actors here, the, the ones committing the actions were not state actors, not government officials. Even though we know that one of them, Gregory McMichael, uh, is a retired police officer, and that and yeah. that's significant. No, and also, like they called the government, they called the police beforehand. You know, and the police didn't say go over there and shoot this dude. You know what I mean? So, like, it's the same thing with George Zimmerman. You know, he was on the phone with the police, and, and they told him to stand down, stand down. George Zimmer boy was free. I mean, not to even call him, not to even disrespect boys to call him George Zimmer boy. He's even worse than that. I mean, like, like it's just, I don't know. But anyway, him, and he, he was just writing the news the other day for somebody shooting at him. And it was a white guy, you know, but um, him, and in this other case right here that you just, you just mentioned, like, they caught the police as well. And then after it happened, they weren't, they weren't, neither, neither, they, they're not incarcerated. They just got recently incarcerated. That's the government allowing, allowing it to happen, is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? It like, like, so it ain't like, like they're doing it on the government porch no more, but the government still knows some type of way, some type of enforcement knows. Like, like with George Zimmerman, they justified it. You know, the person who shot at George Zimmerman, he, he's facing 20 years. That's because he's a protected class. Man, it's, and, and that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying the psychological effects, you know, is, is, is to the point where racism is just as American as apple pie. Well, racism itself, I think, is the term that has been watered down. In its use, that seems contradictory to say because I, I'm arguing that racism is living uh, on a daily basis. But the way I say that's watered down is that people expect racism to be very finite. They want only one version of it. They want it to be right. so well crafted in its application that you can't deny it. So, for example, they'll say racism is only available when I see a sign that says. No black person allowed in this restaurant. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, that yeah. sign, you know, we already went through the period where those signs had to be brought down. But those actions continue to do the same effect. You said we have to think about racism as American as apple pie. And it, that's not an exaggeration. The reason why it's not an exaggeration is that when we've taken an inventory of race in America, we see that it is invented. The white black binary has its roots in America, our version of it. There are other countries that make their model. But when we think about the founding of the United States, even the previous version, uh, there's that project, the 1619 project, that looks at the early colonial settlements where people uh, bring in these uh, communities that we 
now call the, the slave caste. But at that very moment, these are kidnapped people that are brought to the early colonies. And at that moment, we see those legal codes that for the first time call them black. They had their own name. So this idea of this perspective that you say, hey, we can think about racism as a legally defined model of creating inequality via race, very much pre-America, hundreds of years prior to the United States being born, we have just what you say. So when the United States is being crafted, it grandfathers it over. It carries it over. It doesn't reinvent it. It actually solidifies it. And also to your point of anti-blackness and lynching and the psychological effect, uh, I'm going to just recap briefly what the little that I know about uh, Ahmad Aubrey's case. Ahmad Aubrey is running. He's a jogger. Two individuals call the police, report this person running. The police do not tell them, hey, go after them. But yet they do. In fact, they go and they get their guns. And they get on a truck and they get a third person, uh, William Bryan, on a second truck. And they're, they're cutting this person off. And I know growing up, whenever something like that happened, I remember cars rolling up and making a turn and having my body tense up and my stomach sink. I can only imagine what Ahmad felt. And then what's worse, this person, they have guns. I'm trying to make sense of this because I'm saying, when I hear people say this isn't, you're going too fast. This isn't racism yet. Right now, they're just thinking it's a, a suspect that probably committed a crime. You're like, that's literally racism. That's called racial profiling. Because if every time I see a jogger in my neighborhood, I don't call the cops thinking that this is a, a potential robber. Why couldn't this person just run like any other person runs? And the reason we know is because of what you mentioned, the psychological effect of growing in a country that sees a black body and associates with criminality. Like I said, we, we don't even fully understand how, how, how it truly affects us. And it, it's like, even to this day, when you, you wonder, like, like how can a, a, like Black Lives Matter even be a term? Like, how do you have to remind people in this age of something like this, you know? And it's because, like, we have been conditioned, you know? And I wanted to bring this up, you know, I, I forgot, but, you know, like, but all bodies of color, like, you know what I mean, in, in relationship to the, uh, what we understand, you know, for the longest time, you know, and it, it, yesterday was Malcolm X's birthday. So, like, you know, I, 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 I streamed this lesson from a lesson that I've watched from Malcolm X. And Malcolm X, he defined, he used the color black, the crayon, the, the dictionary definition, was well, really the dictionary definition of black. And it, 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 it said, it was a color, you know, all that stuff. But then it got to saying evil, wicked, dirty, soiled, you know. And, and I looked it up myself, you know, it, it, at first they, they named it as a color. Then they named it as a people. And then after they named it as a people, then go to number three, then a period. And then it goes into being evil, dirty, wicked, all these different things like this that, that are negative attached to the word black itself. You know, and um, never did it define it as beautiful, you know, and everybody knows black is beautiful, you know, that's the saying, you know, and, um, but, but never defined as that, you know what I mean? It was defined in the opposite. 
And the same thing, okay, so I, I learned that from Malcolm X, you know, but then I re- researched it myself. So I took it another further, a step further and looked at the other colors that they identify races as. In yellow, it was defined as timid. Brown, they defined it as not even a color. They defined it as a hue between red and yellow. You know what I mean? And what they say about, you know, you, you, you get what I'm saying. Red, they said it's um, uh, 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 operating in a loss. That if you're red, you're in the minus. You know, and the only color that didn't have no stigma attached to it was white. And it was pure and honest and all these other things, you know. So, like, when you talk about the construction of, of, of race and using colors and stuff, because, you know, every color has some type of stigma attached to it, but white. But white, you know. So, like, even the color itself is stigma attached to it. And, like, these are things that we've been taught in school about colors and everything. These are things that we hold in the back of our head. That, that we don't probably like just say it out loud, but this is operating every time you mention these colors. That's probably the hardest for people to address the idea of how deep we've internalized these teachings, the ways that we have yeah. a language that re yeah that rewrites these codes, these symbolic codes of inequality. And there's this model, I think, that many of us have been working with, which is this, this, this placement, this vision that we perceive of change, this perception that, like, if we invest in understanding the system, we can build a better future. So that when, when you mentioned this, this movement of thinking about if Black is described in such a negative term, now I understand why when people speak about Black is beautiful, it is not the same as trying to bring down another group. It's just trying to reaffirm it. The, the brown is beautiful movement. Uh, we saw the 1960s, all these beautiful posters, all these beautiful songs, these be- beautiful expressions of self-love. That's all it was. And that itself was ridiculously threatening. That's what I want to say. Like how ridiculous to have self-appreciation be something that is threatening to the system and to connect it back to what Ahmad Aubrey's situation activates for me is this. So Ahmad Aubrey is a, is a jogger. He's running. But the thing that I'm thinking about is this, how ridiculous it is that some of us can't even run because it's threatening and that activates the same connection to what I'm thinking about in terms yeah. of self-love. A lot of us know that we operate on a daily basis with vulnerability. So I'm going to share a brief story. I was with a, a group of friends. This is during the winter and we were doing a, a martial art class, Muay Thai. And one of the guys was talking about like, man, I'm going to start wearing my hoodie. Uh, he had, you know, like a big pullover hoodie. And then, dude, immediately all of us started laughing like, no, 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 don't do this. And then he started laughing. He goes, what was I thinking? No, of course I'm not going to run my, wear my hoodie and run at night. The reason he said that is because we know that 
our bodies cannot run at night with a hoodie because we activate vulnerability. But at the same time, whenever I see someone that I code as a person of color that does things that, that I wouldn't, I am impressed. I feel like, oh my goodness, how are you that comfortable in your own skin to run with a hoodie and then think about this model of saying, that's because I've internalized my own sense of vulnerability and I'm somewhat projecting it. I think there's a conversation here about thinking about how we are punished when we overextend the limitations of what the system expects from us. I think, it's, I think to your point, you know, I talked about it before, but this book right here by a lady named Ann Ferguson, I think it's, it's crazy because her name is Ann Ferguson and she wrote, she wrote this book called Bad Boys, Public Schools and Making of Black Masculinity. And the first thing that she talked about was this boy, his name is Forrest, and Forrest had a hoodie on in, 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 in school. And she said the first thing she thought about when she seen this, this young man, and, and, and I'm going to touch with this, he's my age. Like, I, I did the math on this. You know what I mean? So it's like, when she wrote this, he's pretty much my age. And he was going to school with a hoodie on around the time of the movie Juice. And all she could think of was this boy was Tupac's character Bishop in the movie Juice. Just because he wore a hoodie. And now, the movie Tupac role in Juice was a killer. He ended up killing, I'm going to say, two of his close friends and try to kill a third. And, and, and off top, just because he had on a hoodie, she flashed and, and looked at her as a killer just because he had on a hoodie. And I, I think I, I, say, I say that because this book was written before Trayvon Martin. You know, and, and, and it's like, you know, the stigma on, you know, just wearing a hoodie itself. You know, a hoodie is my favorite clothing. I, I don't know. I, I just think it's perfect. I, I, I love it. I, I feel like it's comfort for me. The hood, the string on my, the string I could tie around it to make me warm and my, my face is body temperature with my, with, with, with the rest of me, I like to sleep in hoodies. I, I would go to sleep in a hoodie and be comfortable. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's crazy because I, I, I won't, I mean, like, like the same thing you said, I don't think nothing of it. But my wife one day told me, like, you know, you shouldn't wear a black hoodie. You know? Because she was concerned about me. And I'm like, Dad, you know, like, you know, you know, you have to sacrifice your comfort so other people can be comfortable so that you don't be so that they don't make you uncomfortable or put you in a place where you ain't feeling nothing at all. You know, it um you know I mean I always find that kind of like, you know, you know what I mean like like the stigma of a person of color in a hoodie. And, 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 and like, you know, and, and I bet you I'm willing to bet money. I'm willing to bet dollars and donuts that um, more people of color wear hoodies than people committing crimes. You know, but it's the stigma attached to it that um, creates an unsafe environment for even your person running. 
And then my second point was, you know, especially with the running part, right? And the history, and given that we're talking about the history of lynching, right? See, a black man running at one point in time was a runaway slave. You know, in like, how long has this, what's the psychological effects of that? You know, to the point where if you see a brother running down the street, you automatically think that he did something. That he can't be about no fitness. Even though a lot of brothers is fit. Well, that's what throws me off the most because I think about this awkward statement. One of the most awkward statements that I read was this. Why was Ahmad running? Let me just kind of pause to how ridiculous that statement is. Because, so we're going to now place the burden of culpability on the person who's, who's the recipient of violence. Because we can't accept what you just said. That every human being is being expressively free. And if you're a young man who is into body conditioning, you run. I see people run every day around my neighborhood. I don't call the cops on them. But as you mentioned, not all of us carry the same symbolic codes. We don't. It, it, it's the same thing. Like, one day I, I was feeling spirited and I wore a whole lot of UCR gear. And I look like a gang member because it's blue. But nobody else, it don't matter. You know, it, 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 they, they, they don't have to deal with the stigma of, of, of looking like a suspect just because they want to feel spirited. You know? And um, so, like, you know, I always, I always find that, 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 that just that, you know, is that, like, you know, when I wear something is different from when, when somebody else wears it. It's like a point that you brought up before. And I did this on purpose one time, right? So, like, it's cool. People wear bandanas and, you know, and, and, and like, it's never, it's never about no, no, no gang type of activity. You know, why people wear, like, they might just have a frat thing and they wear bandanas or something. And you never, you never do it, right? So, I was noticing this. And one day, I chose to wear a bandana on my head just to see what was going to happen. And you should see how everybody is turning, right? You should see how the teacher could barely even teach. They could barely even teach. And it, other people with bandanas on in the classroom. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it's my prototype that got the attention. You know, and, and I know they could say, you know, it's a history there. But, like, at the same time, like, you know, I haven't done nothing to nobody, you know, for them to be, like, stigmatized and judging me and doing all this other stuff. And, 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 like, most of the stuff that you see about the streets, a lot of people who are afraid have never even came in, in contact with the issue. They're just afraid because they watch the news and bought into a, 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 bought into a, a narrative that's, that's, that's been given to them, has been force fed to them through um, 
constant watching it. And, and, and the same thing I'm saying with this psychological effects of lynching. Because black people wasn't the only people lynched. In, 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 in college, I read stories about Mexicans, about Native Americans, and even Asians that have been lynched. But you don't see, you don't see it. You don't see it. You know, and that's the same, and that's the same thing with a lot of things. Like, like a lot, one of the critiques is that a lot of people who are Latin, uh, Latinx, Chicano, uh, Mexican, they are being harassed too. They're being killed too. But you don't see it. You don't see it. There is something there, which is like this, this anti-blackness movement is tied to silencing other versions of violence, but not, not in a way that, 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 that is purposely saying like the, the Black Lives Matter movement is not actually silencing anyone, but the people that highlight saying like, well, you only see one group seem to be capitalizing and almost winning on by, by having other groups not be visible, which I think goes back to what you said earlier, this idea of the psychological effect of seeing the bodies, because there's this, there's this right. uh, denial of it. How do you summarize this conversation? I think, I think this is going to be an ongoing, ongoing conversation that we're going to have to talk about for, for a while, you know, because like, you know, the first thing I thought was like, you know, we have to educate ourselves about, about, about this. But then what I realized is that we can educate ourselves and then we start to operate within a silo. So like the key thing is to um, try to educate as many people as you possibly can. You know, whether, no matter what, 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 what race, what religion, what, but no matter or what, you know, educate as many people as you can because then people can start to um, have some type of empathy. The thing that I've seen before that I said is that a lot, of, a lot of people are making decisions around people they ain't never even been around. So, like, you know what I mean? And it's purposely because when you start to hear the voice of somebody else, you start to become empathetic. And that's not what they're trying to do. That's not what they're trying to do. So I think it's our job to educate other people, you know, to the best of our ability and um, just try to remain hopeful within that. Terrence, I want to thank you for sharing this conversation with us today. Thank you. You've just finished hearing a conversation with Terrence Stewart, statewide director of the Times Done Project, education scholar, community organizer, and activist. We shared a conversation of how the current COVID-19 policies of sheltering in place, quarantine, as well as requirement of wearing masks in public is experienced differently via the racialized context for communities that are coded as people of color. The shelter in place policy did not decrease vulnerabilities, but instead intensified risk of injury creates a context where the public space becomes more surveilled than before. There's a generalized narrative that black and brown bodies 
black and brown male coded bodies have historically had to explain their presence in public. Their very existence walking creates concern, creates suspicion. That suspicion is translated to a threat. That threat is translated into violence. But violence upon the quote-unquote suspicious body. The video documented killing of Ahmad Arbery by Travis McMichael as a coordinated effort between Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and a third person, William Rohde, Brian, is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because of the impact of this repetition of violence, this repetition of displaying individuals coded as black bodies being killed. As a country, we have a deep history of displaying black bodies upon their killing. Terrence Stewart highlighted a question. What is the psychological effect of displaying violence upon the black body? The killing of the black body. You've been listening to Daniel here on the Deer Report on KUCR 88.3 FM, the radio station of UC Riverside. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, any feedback to the following email. Comments at dreport.org. You can also check out the following website, dreport.org, to review the archived past segments. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again next week.